Well, contrary to what I said yesterday, Ted Dianin is not with us today to talk about her editorial. That's okay. Lisa Garvin and I have plenty we can say about it. And Seth Richardson is not here on a rare Wednesday. He'll be here with us tomorrow. We want to talk about a story we hope he publishes today. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I am Chris Quinn here with the aforementioned Lisa Garvin and my colleague, Laura Johnston. It's Wednesday, right? It is. (laughs) Short week. Short weeks sometimes feel long before you get to another weekend, but yes. I keep losing track. I think that's probably a good thing. All right, let's get started. What was the thinking behind an editorial on Cleveland.com and in the Plain Dealer Sunday that looked at Tuesday's election in Cleveland as a a once-in-a-generation moment? Lisa, Ted Dieden suggested this idea. It was an interesting moment in our editorial board discussions that I think turned out quite well. Yes, it was. And and coming from our conservative columnist, I think it lends it even more, you know, weight and and uh, and credibility. But, uh, yeah, we've got a young slate of uh, very viable candidates running in council and, and mayoral races, not just in Cleveland, but in surrounding areas. And this is a chance. I mean, we've had the same mayor since. 2001 is that when Frank Jackson was elected 2000 2001 No he was he was 2005 it just seems like 2001 <laughs> We have another 4 it's, years right It there. is the first time in 20 years that an incumbent mayor is not on the ballot And I I think that that Frank Jackson has done a good job in in trying to keep Cleveland's finances together I mean they do have a rainy day fund but I think that he's been kind of closed off in his his thinking. He doesn't seem to engage with other philanthropic and civic leaders. And I think these young people have a passion for that. They have a passion for their community, getting engaged with people to help move the city forward. So yes, this is a watershed moment, I think, in Cleveland politics. Yeah, we will talk toward the end of the year about the Frank Jackson legacy. I, I know him quite well. I've covered him since he was a city council member and been involved with him for years, I have regular conversations with him. And I actually think he's done a pretty tremendous job and he will end up with a, with a very strong legacy. But it's been 16 years and you could argue that maybe he should have stopped at 12. What, what Ted spotted as we discussed the endorsement of Justin Bibb was that this is, this is really that watershed moment where once in a lifetime, you get to change your government and bring in what you describe, that energy, that vision, that innovation. And the editorial says, so don't just elect Justin Bibb, but elect a council to go with him to help carry that vision forward. It was really quite quite something to think about what could happen next Tuesday in the primary and then in November if you suddenly get a bunch of, of younger energetic people in city government who want to start making some dramatic change. And I noticed I sat in on just about all of these endorsement interviews that the editorial board did for the candidates. And I was struck by the quality of the field. I mean, in some races, you have people that never been in politics, just thought they'd throw their hat in the ring. But these people actually have a vision for the city and they and they have the ambition and some of them even young as they are have the credentials you know to uh you know run for office and do good at it so i was kind of excited by that yeah that actually that's a really important point for anybody that's been paying attention to cleveland politics over the years 
and and people who run for council, there have been a lot of years where there is no choice. You don't want to endorse anybody. You don't want to vote for anybody. But you're right. This field is loaded with people. And in the mayor's race, you have real choices. These candidates all present real choices. Some, not good choices, but choices nonetheless. So it's good stuff. Check out the editorial on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. For people who still think children are not at risk of serious illness from the coronavirus, what new intensive care statistic came out Monday that could change their thinking? And why does the CDC say so many children are suddenly showing up at the hospital? Laura Johnston, I I, I can't say we're surprised. We've been talking that this wave was coming for a couple of months now. Once school started, we knew we'd see it. But it's sad that the predictions turned out to be correct. Yeah, absolutely. Like Tuesday, no, or sorry, not Tuesday. Yeah, actually, now I messed up on the days of the week. But yeah, Tuesday's numbers were terrible. There are more than 70 kids with the coronavirus at Ohio's six children's hospitals. It's the highest number since we've seen since the beginning of the pandemic. And you combine those hospitalizations compared with the higher than normal number of kids with RSV, a respiratory illness, that is straining emergency rooms and intensive care units throughout the state of Ohio, probably throughout the country, all the kids with COVID are unvaccinated, either because they're too young, they're not 12 yet, or because they just haven't been. Obviously, we're talking about the Delta variant here. It's more contagious. It's more dangerous. Although soon we could be talking about the Mu variant. And just to show how bad this is, UH Rainbow and Babies Children's Hospital hit capacity last week. That that is striking, that they actually could hit capacity. And look, In part of the argument people made against mask mandates at school and online learning is that children are not vulnerable to this. I've heard that argument over and over again. The statistics don't back it up. The children make up a small part of those who get really sick. And the, the health experts have tried to push back on that, saying, look, the virus evolves. It's going to start hitting kids. Well, now it has. And so mm-hmm. that whole anti-masking argument involving the schools has been obliterated. But how many people have we heard make that argument? Right. Because at the beginning, you know, when we were talking about the regular COVID, it didn't seem like kids were getting very sick. And we were keeping it under controls in, in schools. But also you were keeping it under control because kids were masking because they were distancing. And according to the latest CDC report, hospitalization rates for children and teens increased fivefold from late June through mid-August. And that's because everybody's coming back to school. And we talked about this yesterday. We talk about it all the time. This is the low point of the virus. It's warm out. We're outside. It's going to get worse as it gets colder and we all move inside. And I, I hope we don't see a huge spike in hospitalizations of kids because that, I mean, that, these... These kids need to be protected. And so there was um, the first virtual news conference of all the hospital, pediatric hospital leaders yesterday, and they stopped short. I think they were asked three times about a mask mandate and they wouldn't say it, but they did say that, you know, Ohioans always come together to do the right thing. You know, we talk about the failures of how we dealt with the coronavirus from the beginning. You know, Donald Trump, when he was president, didn't take the steps he needed to battle it. He did okay with the the vaccine, but everything else was a fumble. But I think what could be our biggest failure, if this becomes something that really makes kids sick and die, that's our biggest failing because we could have stopped it if we would have all just gotten vaccinated and taken the proper precautions. I hope it doesn't uh, get much worse. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
How might the Ohio Supreme Court give haters of Cleveland's defunct traffic camera tickets reason for whooping it up and cheering? Lisa Garvin, if I sound very happy about this, I am. I thought that the traffic cameras were a blight on the community, a cheesy way to raise extra money in the name, the false name of safety. Uh, And now the Supreme Court is considering a fairly significant element of this battle. Before we get started, I I was not here when uh, you guys outlawed cameras in 2014, but we had the same battle in Houston over red light cameras, and they were finally removed throughout the state in 2019. So I've been through this, and I'm actually on the other side of this. I like the red light cameras. But anyway, uh, no! yes, Ohio Supreme Court <laughs> is considering a case um, that was filed by, from what I understand, people who were renting, leasing, or driving employer-supplied vehicles. It was a class action suit. They were seeking $4.1 million in refunds of tickets that they received through the traffic cameras from 2005 to 2009. And on top of that, they want $1.8 million in interest for having that those refunds withheld from them all these years. So a lot of money on the table here, but the city in their defense was saying that the, that the Kate, the plaintiffs in the case did not appeal their tickets to the common police court and they admitted their guilt by paying the tickets. So I'm kind of with them there. So um, apparently they'll be looking at this and, and coming up hopefully with a ruling in the next few months, the Ohio Supreme court. But um, I guess there was, I don't know. Uh, I guess the the cameras were making about $6 million a year in revenues for the city of Cleveland, which is no small change for people who, by the way, were breaking the law. Well, the, the idea that because people paid their fine, it was an admission of guilt is preposterous. If you didn't pay the fine, you couldn't renew your license. Look, I get the argument that the cameras remove all of the judgmental parts of tickets that for for people that think police target different ethnicities, different races for tickets, this takes it away. The camera is blind to any of that. If you run the red light, if you speed past the camera, you get a ticket. End of story. It takes all that judgment out of it. And that's I've heard people make that argument. I, I think the way the city placed their red light cameras, it was really intended to get commuters. And if you go back and look at what city council members said at the time they approved this, they said that, well, as long as this isn't getting my residence, I don't care. Let's make sure it's getting the commuters. Well, that's not right. If this really was done in the notion of safety, you should figure out where the biggest hazards are and put the cameras there. Uh, but it, it turned out people hated them. And when Cleveland went to vote, they voted them out. Uh, and that's been the end of it. Uh, Jane Campbell, when she was mayor before Frank Jackson, put them in because the city did need the money, although she claimed it was for public safety. I never got one. Lisa, when you were in Texas, did you ever get one of these tickets? I did not. But since I've been back in Cleveland in 2017 is when I came back, I've gotten three tickets from cameras in East Cleveland the most recent one Ah. a month ago. So, and it's always on Superior because I usually take Superior to go downtown and they caught me right at the Cleveland, East Cleveland line, this last ticket last month. It's like 105 It's 25 miles an hour, right? I don't even know. Is that the school zone one? (laughs) They have a school zone too that makes it really tricky. I I don't think you have to pay those though because it's unenforceable in Ohio. I think people keep sending the money in but I don't believe that they they can force you to pay that ticket because of 
the status. Well, my insurance uh, provider said that. He said, you don't have to pay that ticket, but because it's East Cleveland, I paid it. I mean, they could use my money. I, <laughs> I was they need the money. <laughs> Although they also set the camera at 26 miles an hour. In Cleveland, I forget what the number of miles was, but you had to be going uh, some significant I speed. Think it was, this is Laura Johnston. I think it was six. I'm not going to yeah. swear on that, but I did get one. Do you remember the one on Chester, like uh, East 73rd? Yes. yes. I, I got one there once. Yeah. I, I never got one. I, I follow the rules. I guess oh, I'm just yeah, a safer yeah. driver. <laughs> You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How many school districts have toughened up their mask policies after the first few weeks of school resulted in a lot of student exposure to the coronavirus? Laura, we started the discussion today talking about the number of kids who are sick. That that rate of sickness has scared the bejesus out of some school districts. And so they rapidly are dropping their aversion to mask mandates. Yeah, absolutely. Hats off to Hannah Drown, who tracked down all sorts of districts and how they reacted during the first two weeks of school. I counted about a dozen that she put together that now require masks, at least for kids kindergarten through fifth grade, which uh, that goes up to about 11-year-olds, none of who can be vaccinated right now. So I, I'm not going to name all of them. Her story is on Cleveland.com. She, she has links to all of the districts if you want to check out their policies. But Brexville Broadview Heights announced on Wednesday, last Wednesday, that it was imposing this mask mandate. We'd heard from some of the parents there that were really pushing for it. Medina implemented a mask policy for pre-K through fifth grade and at their middle school just for a week. And if you think about a middle school, that's sixth through eighth grade. So seventh and eighth graders usually can be vaccinated. Sixth graders cannot. Uh, Olmstead Falls put their mask mandate in effect at least through September 17th after more than 60 students were put in quarantine. So yeah, look throughout the state. There's all sorts of, uh, and, and some of them are going even remote right now. One of the benefits if if the kids all start wearing masks is it could reduce the flu again this year. I saw a story in the last couple of days that was predicting a really bad flu season but so many people are are masking up again. Well, I get, I don't want to say that. There there are places where you go where everybody's masked up. There are other places you go where you're the only person wearing a mask. But still, I think any portion of the population wearing them could slow the the spread of the flu and in schools where a lot of people transmit it. If the kids all have to wear masks, then it could be another safe winter, right? Absolutely. And, you know, if, if they're practicing, they've got all the hand sanitizer out and they're washing their hands and they're being careful about, you know, lunch. I think all of that contributes. And I know we've talked about this on the podcast, but a lot of school board members have felt under fire because of all of this discord about masks and vaccinations and people are very angry. But you got to think about the teachers, too. It's got to be a lot easier to teach if you don't have to worry about half your class getting sick or quarantined and going missing. And I know nobody likes the masks, but I think it's way the lesser of the evils in this case. Well, you just don't seem to be seeing quite the same level of screeching we saw six weeks ago when school was getting ready to start. That The number of kids that are falling, the anti-mask people have kind of gone away and Come back to critical race theory. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. How has the pandemic set back the cause of racial, gender, and income equality in Ohio, according to Policy Matters? Lord Johnston, they put out a study in the last week that said that some of the steps forward are now becoming steps backward. 
Yes, Policy Matters, which is a liberal organization, puts out an annual report on Ohio's workforce. And the latest one says that the pandemic actually reshaped the economy by forcing hundreds of thousands of Ohioans out of the workforce and exacerbating all of this inequality. And their goal is to put working people at the center of policy decision rather than big business or checkbooks or all those things. They, they're trying to promote an equitable recovery that helps median wage earners, the people in the middle, not just the wealthy. And they want a mandated minimum wage and federal protection for the right to unionize. So they, they have some findings that nobody's really arguing with. They don't necessarily like their solutions, but you know they have numbers to back it up that COVID displaced over 1 million Ohioans from their job. There's actually 269,000 fewer jobs now than than there were before. And you think about it, and that's even with everyone saying, we can't find enough workers. You know, we talked about this last year uh, when when you were hit and Layla was hit with the students staying at home, that this, this weighed much more heavily on working moms than working dads. Does, does this study seem to pick up on that theme? Yeah, absolutely. It says women were more likely to be than men to be laid off or forced to leave their jobs and that they're paid an average of $18 an hour compared to $21.50 for men. And I, I don't I don't think we quite know the impact that the pandemic is having on women in the workforce yet. I mean, we know that month after month women were leaving the workforce for childcare reasons and because they felt like somebody had to take care of their kids. And usually it's the the partner who earns less, but we don't know what it means in terms of their long-term career and the, the workforce long-term. There was a lot of juggling last year, you know, personally, you had your kids home while Just you were last year? Really? having a new job. <laughs> so how do you feel the juggling is now? Is it a, is it a reduced rate, but it's still a balancing act trying to keep everything going? Or do you feel like things have returned a good bit to more normal? Well, I think there's a new normal, right? Like I'm still working from home. My kids used to go to aftercare every day and I, we would pick them up. So now they come home at three o'clock and, you know, they're writing notes on, on my notepad while I'm on the phone asking me if they can go for a bike ride or something. <laughs> and so I mean, I could still send my kids to aftercare. That is an option, which is so needed for so many people, but and it's really been a gift to be able to have my kids come home earlier, but it, it is always a juggle and a struggle. And I, I, I think maybe some dads who are still working from home are seeing it more than they have in the past too. If I may add, I just had, yeah, I wanted to add something, you know, back in when I was a working woman, you know, they talked about the mommy track and women who were, you know, getting pregnant while working and having children and taking time off. A lot of women who had children, you know, who were working, their careers suffered because of it, you know, and so this is kind of like version 2.0 of the mommy track. Because let's face it, in most cases, it, it is the female that is staying home with the children during COVID and helping them with their online schooling. So this is like another version of the mommy track that's very concerning to me. Yeah, and like Laura said, this could be the new normal. We may be in this track for quite some time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is a black contractors group in Cleveland upset about the plans for the Sherwin-Williams headquarters plan near Public Square? Norm Edwards has been very active whenever he believes that there's a construction project of, of some scale that is not considering the needs of minority contractors, is not trying to build equity into the system. 
What's going on here? The Black Contractors Group called on Sherwin Williams to keep its word to keep its word and be included on this project to build the 36-story tower at West Third Street and Superior. And they actually had this news conference on Tuesday, just announced that morning in conjunction with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And the company, which doesn't always talk, right? There's no they don't have to talk. They're, they don't have to give us public records, but they said they're in the process of awarding contracts to minority-owned businesses in multiple roles, including construction management, and they will announce those partnerships when the contracts are fully agreed and signed. And they said they were actually disappointed by by the, the, the showing from the Black Contractors Group that they kind of took this public. Yeah, the, the statement by Sharon Williams is, hey, look, we've been doing all sorts of things. We're about to announce contracts, and and we're not sure why they did this. But, you know, Norm Edwards doesn't do anything lightly. When he feels like the, the discussion is robust and it's in good faith, he works very closely with people and is very quick to commend them. So something triggered him to believe that they're they're not going to be focused on this. Uh, and it's kind of hard for us as outsiders to understand what what the big rub is. Yeah, absolutely. And he, he sent out another uh, news release this morning. So I don't think this is over. And, you know, they're getting about one hundred million dollars in public incentives to build this six hundred million dollar project. And both the county and the city have very strict uh goals to hit with minority and women-owned businesses when they, they are getting county money. So I, I'm not sure how that factors into all of this, but Sherwin-Williams said they encourage Black-owned and other minority businesses to register online so they can be contacted as more opportunities become available. And they, they call this part of their Streets to the Suites campaign to mediate and provide justice for companies, which they say are experiencing corporate racism. Okay, we'll have to see how this one shakes out because Norm Edwards will not go away quietly. He will continue to push, and this is a long-term construction project. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Labor Day is the unofficial end of summer, so let's talk about the weather. Was it as rainy a summer as it seemed? Laura Johnston, it seemed like we had a lot of humidity and gray skies. What do the stats say? Uh, Cleveland saw 18.92 inches of rain between Memorial Day weekend and Labor Day weekend, and that's the third highest total in that time frame since 1972, according to the National Weather Service data that is crunched by our own Rich Exner, because Memorial Day to Labor Day is not an official anything on a calendar, so he's the one that keeps those. But our temperature topped 90 degrees just seven times, which I was like, really? I feel like it hit seven times last week, the last week of summer. But um, actually, that was really low. We had seen twice as many every year from 2018 through 2020. So not a hot summer. And July was the rainiest month with 7.91 inches of rain. The the thing that struck me about this summer was the moisture. It, was, yes. it wasn't the, the heat. I mean, we have had a bunch of 90 degree days in the past, but they've been more dry. It just seemed like every time you stepped outside this summer, you were instantly drenched in sweat, no matter what you were doing, whether it was, it was something that was vigorous or not. And you just got tired of it. We're, we had one week in the beginning of August that was just beautiful, kind of like the week we're having now. Um, we do know from Rich Exner's reporting in the past that this coming weekend and the weekend after are traditionally the most beautiful weekends of the year, that if you're going to plan a wedding or something, the best bet you can make would be the second and third weekends of September. So there's that, right? 
Well, absolutely. And that's my um, 15 year wedding anniversary is tomorrow. So it was that wedding um, the weekend after Labor Day. I think September is like the gift to Cleveland for getting through, I don't know, March, maybe (laughs) when you're just like, please let it be nice. So yes, we are in for um, some nice weather. And it's hard to look back on a summer as a whole because you just remember the most recent. But I would agree it was a humid summer. And I feel like we used our our air conditioning more than we even normally do. But we did have a numbers that bared out. We did have a story in July that said the the amount of rain that fell was endangering the corn crop and some other things. But from what I could tell anecdotally in August, anybody that had a garden had the most bounteous Unless you had crop. all the deer like I did. Ugh. Like my tomatoes just got eaten away by the adorable fawns that live in mm-hmm. our neighborhood. So Really? Yeah, I lost my tomato crop, but um, the peas and the, the the lettuce were good earlier the oh, year. My. But... We had we have so many tomatoes that I mean we're going to have sauce galore. I uh, I did wrap some netting around them, but it was a bounteous crop. Lisa, do you do any growing of anything? I do. I have an herb garden, and I am learning as I've been back in Ohio what the deer will and won't eat. But what I've also learned is deer will eat just about anything, even if it says deer resistant. <laughs> I mean, I just spent $3,000 on landscaping to put bushes along my back fence. One of the shrubs that I chose was deer resistant. Well, the next day they had been eaten down by the deer, you know, but uh, yes. And we had a cull here in Lindhurst and South Euclid. They called several deer, you know, several dozen deer, I should say. But I I was shocked when I read that. Lindhurst is four and a half square miles. There were 385 deer counted in Lindhurst. That's a hundred deer per square mile. Right. I, what I what I appreciate about the deer, we have a lot of hostas, but they're like good managers. They'll only eat a quarter of the plants so that they'll thrive and they can get more of their their leaves and lettuce later. I'm in a neighborhood now where there's so many people growing so much that the deer can't eat it all, even if they try. But it, um, it was nice that, that people that didn't have deer problems had a bounty of crops. Uh, we'll have to see how the fall goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We've known for weeks that pop music concert goers will have to be vaccinated or have a recent negative coronavirus test. What's the policy for people who attend highbrow music and stage shows at Severance Hall and Playhouse Square? Lisa Garvin, it's just the private sector is taking this mandate seriously, even if the government is not. And both Severance Hall and all the venues at Playhouse Square will be requiring a proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test within 72 hours. Both of them have existing mask mandates that they will continue to, uh, you know, require. That goes for guests, performers, staff, volunteers, all must comply. Um, apparently at Sever- or at uh, Playhouse Square, this will start with the Lion King on October 1st. And then the prom starts on 11-2, so both of those shows will, these new rules will be in effect. Apparently the shows that are going on now and are just about to leave will not have to comply with these new rules in in the Playhouse Square venues. The Cleveland Orchestra, they, you know, as of 9-15, masks are required. They will supply them. Again, like I said, they are... um, 
you know, asking people to have requirement of a vaccination proof and a negative test. But at, at the orchestra, they said, if you are unable or unwilling to comply with their new rules, you can get a refund. And Severance has been busy over the, you know, during the pandemic, upgrading their HVAC infiltration system and touchless bathrooms to make it a lot easier. But quite honestly, I think the crowd that probably, you know, goes to these venues will probably comply or probably were complying already. So I I don't see it to be a flashpoint in these venues. Hopefully not. I do think it's fascinating how the private sector is is doing this, that the the pop music was the first. Those venues almost immediately said we're doing it. Some of the acts that have toured have said we're only doing it if you your mask. When Bruce Springsteen returned to Broadway, everybody had a had to come in with with some kind of proof. Uh, Yet you have a lot of employers like the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals, which take care of sick people not doing it and you just wonder if the the evolution keeps going the other thing is you you cited the dates when this is starting it seems like they're gearing up for a more rapid spread in the fall that this stuff is starting in september and october because that's when viruses start to proliferate so that was that's an interesting this is Laura Johnston. I just want to say I'm glad because those are like, you know, th- you have to be best friends with whoever you sit next to at Playhouse Square. Like, <laughs> I, 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 I'm not even that tall. And when you go, you're like, you got to wear your most comfortable pants. You know, you don't want to wear It's just like you are just crunched in there. And that is, you know, you are sharing some air with those people. And I didn't see yeah, any... I didn't see any mention of social distancing, so I'm assuming that all of these venues will be having a full house. I didn't read whether they were going to have like. I don't think they can make any money if they don't. Right. Yeah. Support the shows. Yeah, they have to sell out to do it. And you know, we don't have the official word on what the Browns will do. I don't believe, but I believe they'll be full capacity as well. Uh, But I don't know that we've heard whether or not that will require uh, masks. Have we? No, but we know Ohio State will not, right? Right. But I, it'll be interesting to see what they do. Uh, they, they, they start the season away in Kansas City, so we have a little bit of time. That game is this weekend. Anyway, we're, uh, we're about to run over. Check, look, today, look today or tomorrow for Seth Richardson's story on whether candidates for mayor in Cleveland disavow the anonymous dark money attack ads that have been coming out, mainly in support of Kevin Kelly and Dennis Kucinich. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 